на трибунах олеют знамена, Облака под небесни плывут. На зеленом ковре стадиона разноцветные майки цветут. Hello and welcome back to the Russian Football News Podcast. The season's almost over with the championship and relegation places solved mathematically at least. This weekend are the semi-finals of the Cup of Russia before the season ends in earnest next week. To discuss the latest matters in the world of Russian football, I'm your host, James Nichols, and I'll be joined by Andrew Flint, live from Siberia. Hello, Andrew. Hello, James. How are you doing? I'm not too bad. I'm actually a little bit glad to get to the end of the season. It's been a bit of a tough <laughs> one, a bit fragment, fragmented, and then at least it's a nice long summer break of all of uh, seven days. <laughs> yeah, we can just about catch a breath before we get right back into it again, can't we? And uh, also not joining us this week is David Sanson, as he's off gallivanting around southern England, probably figuring out how to solve Ruben Kazan's complete lack of attacking ability in front of goal. <laughs> so unfortunately, he can't join us today. <laughs> yeah. First up this week's another contra- coronavirus controversy. Sochi were in the headlines at the beginning of the season restart for refusing to postpone their game with a virus hit Rostov. They then went on and trounced Rostov's kids 10-1. Well, now Sochi themselves are hit by COVID-19, with news emerging on Thursday that nine players and staff had tested positive in the Eva Leg match in Tambov. These nine individuals have been quarantined and the entire Sochi party flew back to southern Russia, therefore forfeiting the game and losing 3-0 by force majeure. As a result, Tambov are now mathematically safe from relegation and for the time being condemn Krylia Sovietov to the Fener L. They are, however, expected that Sochi, that is, expected to play Krulia in game week 30 next midweek. The general director, Dmitry Rubashko, actually claimed in an interview with Sport24 that all the guys are doing well and all the coronavirus is asymptomatic. They're young, they have strong bodies. It's important for us that they revealed him on time and now the sick guys have been isolated and quarantined. The match of Krulia will not take place. For now, I cannot say that. Today and tomorrow will be further testing. If everything is in order, then we are set to play. We're turning into the fact that this will take place. Sport Express also claim that neither Alexander Kokorin nor Anton Zablotny, Sochi's two high school scorers, have tested positive. So as this have as some have kind of unkindly suggested on social media, is this a little bit of karma for Sochi, Andrew, or is that a little bit a little bit too far to go? Uh, well, I think one thing that's for certain is that Sochi didn't come out of the first major um, drama with the coronavirus in in particularly good image after, like you mentioned, they refused to postpone the game against Rostov. So I don't think there's much sympathy for them. Um, now that they have, have to deal with it themselves, I don't think really at this point uh, it's going to make a, a great deal of difference because like you mentioned, most things have already been decided. Um, for Sochi, they're safe from relegation, um, and it's it's just a shame that everything has been. It just feels like an afterthought, don't you think? Like the way it's all been managed, the way the restart yeah. has happened, and people are not finding out what's happening with a game until hours before the game. Um, I mean, one thing that I think is is sensible in theory is that the regional health authorities have been given priority to decide whether teams can or cannot play because the, the the situation with the coronavirus pandemic is completely different from one region to the next. However, I think one thing that could have been improved, and this match is is a classic example yesterday, uh, no, sorry, yes, was it yesterday, Thursday, um, 
was when, when Sochi's game against Tampa was cancelled only hours before the game, this is where the football authorities could have put the foot down and said, look, we need a decision at least the day before the game. So it is uniform across the board. So everybody knows when a game is going to be confirmed or not. Um, so uh, Sochi have done what they needed to do. They've stayed up. And pretty much this calendar year since Vladimir Fyodorov has taken over, they've looked virtually a completely different side. And I, I honestly, deep down, always knew it would only be a massive time until they would get themselves out of the relegation zone. Um, but simply for them... It's going to be in very, very short supply after their Rostov stunt. Yeah, that certainly. I just think that whole stunt, as you say, was just indicative of Sochi right now. The way that the Boris Rotenberg broke up a historical, te- a very historic team in Dinamo St. Petersburg, who, as we all know, are actually much older of a club than Zenit themselves are, and then moved them down to Sochi in what was a horrendous franchise move, purely just to a financial move just to take advantage of the fact that the authorities were desperate for anybody to make that fish stadium not into a white elephant. And it's just very... It's indicative that the players returned far too early, that even now, those who have been... There's been measures in place of isolation for the teams and such, and and it's still affecting, because at the end of the day, this is a, a worldwide pandemic that is pretty much unheard of in the country before. It's... It, it, like I can I can't sympathise with why people are saying that it's it's a little bit of karma for Sochi because there was a lot of people rightfully very annoyed when they yeah. unsportingly turned down that opportunity. But at the same time, it's a little bit it's a little bit unsavoury thing to say because obviously there's hundreds of thousands of people have died and of coronavirus across the world. Millions have contracted it, and God knows what the long term effects are. It's, even medical professionals are still trying to discover that now. But you can't help but just think, like, in the back of your mind, it's like, ha, like, this is what you get. <laughs> like, because of the well, way that you, the dismantle that young Rostov team was just difficult to watch. Yeah, yeah, you're, abs- you're absolutely right, um, James. It's, it's, it, it's, uh, it's very hard to know what to say or think about virtually any aspect of this corona pandemic because yeah. it, it, it's, a, it's a constantly evolving situation. Realistically, nobody in their lifetime has had to deal with something quite like this before um but i mean for, okay look we we really must be we must stress that we of course we hope that the the players and staff and anybody that's come into contact with them their families and the wider um such mm-hmm. people connected with sochi that they are healthy and that they are generally asymptomatic they recover and they get the negative tests and are looked after just as every other member of the population we hope gets the same treatment so we hope that it doesn't cause any problems that are further spread um uh quite frankly i just think oh, i mean it's, i never thought i'd say this james but i really hope the season ends um soon <laughs> so that we can just just take a breath and just think of something else for a few days um yeah but uh, we'll we'll see what happens. Hopefully, Tesco might notice and we move on. And myself, like I, I wrote an editorial for the site where it was it was my own my own opinion, obviously. But it was essentially saying that this restart, in my eyes, should never have took place. It's because of this, because we just need like we all wanted football to come back. We'd been without it for longer than any other country in the in the world. Like they at least they had a winter of football. We had nothing. And then we had two games and it was taken away from us and we were all rightfully devastated. But 
they just need a break in the country just to, without any of these contact sports just to let this all entirely settle down. Like in, in, in England, where, where I live, we've just brought in a rule of bringing in face masks in shops, which is the right thing to do. But players can't wear face masks and they're in full contact with each other. It's not like they can socially distance on a football pitch, for Christ's sake. You just shouldn't have brought this in to give the extra time to make next season as good and exciting and as posi- as it could be. Hopefully get the fans back in as in a safer environment. And I, I just think this whole soft, the coronavirus debacle, which we all personally had thought that would see in the end of, to be quite honest, because we hadn't seen a, a new case in such a massively long time. And then suddenly it, nine at once to show us just how dangerous this is and how how much of a stumbling block it is to the teams. I mean, there's a little bit of a, a funny one going on with Ufa right now in that they announced that one player had had the virus a couple of weeks ago, days after claiming that nobody had the virus. And now they announced that another player, there was rumours that Andreas von Bagar, who was the initial rumours, had contracted coronavirus. And Ufa denied it. And then when they played midweek, there was, what, eight or nine first-teamers yeah. out of action with absolutely no description or reason as to why. There was a few a few were missing through. No, there was no suspensions. One or two were missing through injury doubts. But then there was nine players, including Yainots, Nedelciaru, Bogan Jokic, Alexander Belenov. There's absolutely no way Ufa will play any football match without Belenov in that team. He's one of the best goalkeepers in the league. So what the hell is going on there? Yeah. Like the Ufa, Ufa VK is just rife with Ufa fans asking why are these players okay? Is it safe? Was it safe to go to the games? Is is everything all right? We we'll want to know about our hero. Like, are they safe? Is everything all right? And there's just nothing coming out of it. It's just like no word. It, well, it's crazy. Absolutely crazy. Yeah, you're absolutely right, James. And I, I believe it was Ufa as well who also questioned the actual test results that came back uh, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I think it was, where they said it was inconclusive, having previously said ill. Of Some reports said ill from something else. Some said coronavirus. Some said positive. The club themselves were casting doubt on whether it was even positive, negative, or inconclusive. Um, now, I mean, it's you, like you actually said, you're absolutely right. The, the 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 match day squad missing out so many top players. Danny Fulmin, another, um, he's just been one of their best players. Um, it's just it, there's no way all of those players just suddenly disappear from the match day squad for no reason whatsoever. Um, I think yeah. I think one other side of all of this, and I know this is going to sound awful, but I I don't agree and I don't approve of this. But I can understand the logic, however cold-hearted and self-centered it is, that a lot of clubs might want to protect their own interests by trying their best to cover up how many cases they've got because they don't want to lose out on any potential revenue, missed games, um, Mm -hmm. whatever costs may be incurred by cancelling a game when a team has travelled and then has gone back. um, Whatever, they, they just don't want to risk it. They, don't, they want to complete their fixtures so that they don't lose out from any broadcast revenue, for example. Um, not that it's particularly high in itself already, but you know yeah. these margins are margins that matter in Russian football to most yeah. of the teams there. So I think, uh, I, I, I really want to stress, this is not me saying I agree with it, but I can see how minds might work like this. And I don't think Ulfa are the only club that may or may not be thinking along those lines. Uh, I'm sure there are others too. Um, and again, it comes back to your editorial. It's too early. 
it's too early because this is going to force a lot of clubs into thinking like this. You have to question. I mean, they themselves have been questioning the medical authorities, but everywhere around the world they're using the same test, exactly the same one, and it's it's proven to be have a very high success rate. Now, it wasn't just Ufa who questioned it; it was Dinamo Moscow who had claimed initially that it was claimed initially that Clinton and G had tested positive for coronavirus, and then a day later it was like the same case. It was also reported that it was inconclusive, and then you had the Orenburg case where Orenburg are saying that no, Orenburg. And the the medical authorities are saying that um, Ricardo Alves had tested positive, and then suddenly, it's his agent and people who know Alves himself are saying that he, he wasn't positive; he was a negative. Well, how could how can it be in, so inconclusive? There's definitely something a little bit hidden there. And uh, just to expedite this, just to just to move on a little bit in the same topic, is that the, the one of the big teams or big people who lose out due to this, ironically, are actually Krylia Sovietov. Now, as I've mentioned, Krilia are now unable to catch Tambov and have been mathematically relegated to the L along with Orenburg. The varies of individual mistakes of defensive ones, our goalkeeping, our attacking massive mishaps of late has cost them clearly despite seeing a market improvement under the new boss, Andrei Talalayev. But a reprieve may actually be in place for Krilia. Now, as of Friday, Championat Andrei Pankov reported that Kimki will refuse promotion to the RPL on financial grounds, and that of which is set to be announced after the Russian Cup semi-final against Ural on Sunday. Now, conversely, the head coach of Kimki, Sergei Juran, has actually claimed that Kimki would definitely play in the RPL next season, which, to be fair to the head coach, is just par for the course for him. He's probably been given a provisional RPL fixture list because they are, as things stand, still mathematically promoted, and he's preparing his team for what he believes is where they will be next season it's all above him mm. or maybe it is but he still has to prepare his team no matter what so Andrew do you think that Kimki could financially support a promotion or will they have to just remain where they are as is what's reportedly expected to happen well I mean the, the problem with the problem with promotion and it's nuts to say a problem with promotion given it's what most clubs around the world strive their entire existence for <laughs> if they're not already in yeah. the top flight but the problem is that it comes with a huge burden. Um, can they support it? Well, you'd have to imagine that Kimki being in one of the outskirts of Moscow, uh, no, I mean, it's a dreadful place. It's a very inaccessible place to get to. The stadium is... Um, people who listen to this podcast may or may not know that we are not the biggest fans of the Kimki Arena. Um, it, yeah. genu- it genuinely does have the worst transport links of Moscow area clubs anyway. But the point is, it is a big club and it, it has hosted Champions League football before. Um, so it is comfortably meets top flight requirements. So um, they don't have a problem with having to spend money on their stadium, which a lot of clubs coming up to the top flight have to do. Um, we've seen Tambov, like you mentioned, they've not even played at home in the top flight because their stadium hasn't come up to standards. Orenburg Stadium, I'm amazed it actually meets the requirements. I've been there and it's, it's tiny. Um, yeah, it's, it's actually like an IKEA building with a football stadium <laughs> in the middle. It does, yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't scream football atmosphere and hotbed. Um, I mean, <laughs> the the there's a, there's a lot of wooden paneling on the floor and it's all very cute and everything, but it, it's not quite. Um, I mean, as much it pains me to say it, Himco Arena is a slightly higher upgrade to uh, Orenburg Stadium. The point is that Himke don't have the stadium problem. So in terms of can they support a promotion financially, 
they have the stadium uh, that's to their advantage and um, so they don't need to worry about that they do have a market Moscow is 15 million people and yes there are four teams already in the top flight Torpedo Moscow um, could have been uh, joining them um, but won't be and had they gone up they could have had six teams in, in Moscow area in in the top flight and even that wouldn't be oversaturated six teams in 15 million people is still you know a decent market area um, yeah. so I think the fact that there is so much doubt over it suggests that there is a reluctance to of the you know who of their backers of the regional government to chip in. I'm, I don't actually know exactly what percentage of the club is run by private or public funds, but at least some must be public. Um, and I think him give a least attractive in a lot of senses um, of the Moscow teams. Therefore, you know we, we've seen teams like Saturn Moscow come and go. We've seen FC Moscow come and go. Um, attempts to put another Moscow team on the map have largely failed beyond the Big Four. Yeah. Uh, or Big Five, sorry. So, Torpedo, I'll include in that. So, uh, it wouldn't take much to make them sustainable because the, the stadium's there. Um, but, on the other hand, it, what, what is the investment for? Torpedo, the history is there. It's the, the you know, the stadium is being redeveloped and they have a decent location in Moscow, so I think there's no problem backing Torpedo. Uh, Himki, on the other hand, what is the investment going to bring you? What are you building on? Um, so long term, I'd say probably not. Short term, sure, it wouldn't take much, but um, the fact that they're questioning it um, kind of tells you all you need to know, because if they could, if they had the funds in place, they'd be jumping at the chance, but they're not. So, um, Well, at least not across the board, so I don't see them, I don't see them going up. Yeah, likewise. I, I, it's, it's been long rumoured that Kimki are pretty much expected to deny the promotion from their own for their own financial reasons, and it's a bit of a funny one because you do well. I'll actually say is first of all, I I went to Kimki once in the in the press room and cover a Dynamo game, and the the, the wonderful hospitality food that was on offer was fermented milk <laughs> and these awful burgers that looked like they'd been microwaved and they were labeled as western burgers and the, they're essentially just like a microwaved grease filled weird shaped meatballs and they're probably the worst thing i've ever ate and drank in my life so that's a good reason to want kimki to stay down in the fnl oh absolutely so we'd have to go through that again but kimki themselves yeah often hear people ask us why isn't promotion a good thing why why does this not make sense to to be promoted? Is but because it's not like in the Premier League and the Championship, where just to to take an, an example, we everybody knows is that the the financial boost due to the TV rights is such a massive step up, where it's irrevocably a good thing. The financial boost is actually quite minimal, to to be quite honest, because yeah. TV rights in Russia, as we all know, is is horrendous. And they would have to spend, they do have to spend money on a little bit of an upgrade to the stadium because I do believe, if I remember rightly, since they were last in the league, and since Dinamo played there and obviously Spartak played there, it has been, it has dilapidated and the rules have changed. I can't remember exactly which what it is, off the top of my head, which is a little bit annoying. But but they do have to make a little addition to the stadium, and then they do have to obviously the big thing is is buy a competitive team. They they they, they can't just keep what they've got and they can't afford this money they know they can afford to be competitive in the L, despite the size of it despite some of the travel they have to go to but it's key to remember that in the back of Kimki's mind is next season the L is what I've always 
like to call the Trans-Siberian Football League is actually a lot less Trans-Siberian with most of the Eastern teams are now no longer in the division. Lucha Energy of Vladivostok are getting are being relegated this season, mm-hmm. and that's the big one that kills the teams. Now, obviously, Baltica Kaliningrad are still there, but it's it's relatively easy flight over to be quite honest. It's yeah. Quite quite quick one and quite relatively cheap, for, especially from Moscow. Chertomiovo is not far. So, despite staying in the Finnels, the, the, the geography you'd think would be such an issue. It's actually not. The, the bigger issue would be obviously relegation to the pay for L, where the, the reward money is essentially nothing. It's, it's like a couple of hundred quid. <laughs> give <it> take. <laughs> so it's pretty much expected that Kimki will n- deny the relegation and probably save Krillia. And I think Krillia would, if not for this, which it, it's a worst kept secret in Russian football, would be pretty pissed off and pretty annoyed and that uh, the case of what happened because if if the season had stopped like in my belief should have then would they have went down would they stayed up i don't know i mean orenberg would have stayed up <laughs> they, they 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 would have they were out of the promotion out of the relegation yeah. places when the season restarted before the season restarted and uh, interestingly enough i'll bring up orenberg because another subplot regarding relegation is what could happen to them now orenberg as we all know have been pretty rubbish for a very long time and already relegated but the state Duma deputy, Igor Sukalev, has actually claimed on his Facebook page that, the I'll paraphrase this because it's very long and very boring, but the entire sports community of Orenburg region is worried. They suffered a series of defeats in a row, uh, including two of which were technical due to staff shortages in the team after outbreak of coronavirus. Now he goes on to claim that I received an appeal from the president of the Orenburg Regional Football Union, which expressed serious concerns about the continued participation of Orenburg in the RPL. And he claims, goes on, that my colleagues, despite belonging to different political parties, have unanimously decided to send letters to the Minister of Sports of the RFU, the President of the RFU and the President of the RPL, in which they ask are asked to consider the possibility of maintaining Orenburg in the Premier League. And he has a nice long list at the bottom of all the different deputies and different members of the Federation Council who have signed it. Now, this is most likely just a, a local... State Duma deputy doing his due diligence for the region in which he represents. But with Orenberg's links to Gazprom, and then of course the fact that they could have stayed up if the season had not restarted, and one of the big reasons as to why it did was because it got hit by the COVID-19 epidemic, it could be one to watch in the long run. It's Russia, anything could happen. Now, continuing on from that, Orenberg's head coach, Konstantin Paramonov, has actually responded to Sukarev. And once again, I'll paraphrase because this is long and he feels quite sorry for himself and talks for about 15 minutes. But <laughs> he claims that the situation's forced. Uh, there are misunderstandings with the local health authorities. We have players who are ill in a mild form who didn't even notice a virus. They passed several negative tests, but those are not given permission to play. Now, we don't know who will actually play against Dinamo. The authorities say it must go through after some stage of the illness, the game that is. We do not understand what is happening. It's as if external forces are putting us into this situation. It's clear that this letter we received is pleasant. We've been talking about this for a long time, but there's very little time left. We've already been sent the calendar of the Fena L. God grant that this letter helps. We for sure have all the conditions to be able to play in the RPL stadium. Well, maybe. <laughs> Finance. And the reconstruction of the IKEA building stadium will be carried out soon. But he goes on to say that if we manage to stay in the RPL, we'll, we'll be able to perform well. Now, at first glance, I think this is honestly a little bit of a long shot from Orenberg. 
And it is interesting that he states that they have the relevant facilities and finances to continue. Now, obviously, Kimki don't have the relevant finances to continue. And the two sides that Orenberg are actually fighting for directly for survival both occupy World Cup stadiums. Now, is this possible that external forces that he claims, or is it just him being a very religious man where he, he literally mentions God in, in his statement? <laughs> now, yeah. do you think this, there's anything in this, or is he just clutching his straws? Uh, well, look, if it was any other country, I'd say he's clutching his straws completely, but this is Russia where we have seen <laughs> the most ridiculous decisions made. Um, uh, no, okay, look, being brutalized, even by Russian Premier League standards, I would have to say this is extremely, extremely unlikely because the only way Orenberg would stay in the league is if the Russian Premier League admit that they've got everything completely wrong by carrying on in the first place. And there's no way they're going to admit that. Um, I don't think they've done everything right. I don't think they've done anything wrong either. They have tried to set, they've set up a task force to communicate with the clubs directly. They've tried to get regional health authorities involved. It's just, it's, it's there's a lot of mistakes along the way as well. Um, Orenberg are really looking for any excuse at this stage. Um, now, the, now, what I find interesting in all of this, okay, he says there's a misunderstanding with the local health authorities. The, 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 the misunderstanding is not what has happened here. The local health authorities are either doing their job how they should be or how they're being told to do it. Now, the second yeah. variation, which is obviously what he's really alluding to, um, would actually be seriously concerning. Um because you, this this goes way way beyond football. This is we're talking about how you know how a health and a global pandemic is being dealt with on a local level. And that that has serious repercussions. We've seen the numbers across Russia of coronavirus infections has across the country as a whole. If you discount Moscow, has barely gone down um, over the last six weeks or so. Now in Moscow, they've managed to make the number of infections go down. But over the country as a whole, they haven't. Um, now, if you think about the measures that the Oldenburg local health authorities are putting into place, stricter is obviously better than more relaxed. But um, when decisions involving health are potentially being influenced by forces or people or decisions that are not based on health, it really is concerning. Um Orenberg hoping to stay in the Premier League is, is a ludicrous concept. Um, not because I've got anything against them. I, I don't like them, um, but that's more for personal <laughs> reasons. Because they, when they were in the FNL and they played against the glorious Fekar Chumen, they were they completely outclassed us on the pitch every time. And I actually think one thing he says is true. If they do manage to stay in the RPL, I think they will be able to perform well. Because although they've been dreadful since the restart, um, you know, they, without Georgia Despotovic, without a few of uh, two or three other players, yeah. without being bullied out of Alexander Sutermin, um, you know, two or three different players to stay or to join them, they 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 were seventh in their first season in the top flight, and that was no fluke. Um, so, what do I think will happen? I think they will go down, and like you've also mentioned as well, James, <laughs> it's no point trying to skip past the issue. Other clubs around them have World Cup stadiums. It's just, you know, it's, it is an influence. It, there's no, if you asked the footballing parties, who would they prefer to be in the Premier League? Uh, a team from Volgograd, a team from Samara, or a team from Orenburg? It's really not much of a decision. <laughs> um, so, 
Orenburg can try all they like, but uh, I'm afraid they, I think I can pretty confidently say they won't be in the Premier League next season. If they do, Russian football is in an even bigger mess than we realised. Yeah, I mean, you've got to break it, like I mentioned, you've got to break this down a little bit. And it's clear as day that the state Duma deputy is just doing his job. He's, he's putting his word in for people in his region. And if I'm quite honest, I don't know if anyone in the football and authorities are really going to take much notice of him. But it's Paramonov I feel a little bit sorry for because you've split his into two. It's like the first one he focuses on health, second one he focuses on the football. In terms of the health, I don't think there's any misunderstanding with the local authorities. I think he's the one with the misunderstanding. He claims that we are football players who were ill in a mild form without noticing the virus. Well, they, they, yeah, they were not allowed to play because anybody who shows any form of symptoms had to be quarantined. Like, Regardless of whether or not the test positive or negative, this isn't the health authorities going in on, get to get Orenberg down. This <laughs> is the health authorities protecting the nation, doing their job. So I yeah. think he was the one who was a little bit misunderstood there. Perhaps it was a little bit lost in my own my translation there, but I believe that's what he said anyway. And then in the second half, obviously, when he discusses the football side of things, is that you do have to question is... I mean, look, Sochi were given the stadium for next to nothing because they were desperate for World Cup stadiums to be kept. Tambov Stadium was nowhere near good enough and they were moved to first Sharansk and then Nizhny Novgorod because, once again, the, the, the authorities of the country are desperate for these for the legacy of the World Cup to be longer term. Now, I think the legacy will certainly be longer term in, in the cultural, in, in, in on the streets, when it, you see the little kids who look at that team and look like the heroes getting to the quarterfinal and so on. But it's inevitable that some of these stadiums will become white elephants. The, the big one now is... Everybody pretty much knows that Baltica Kaliningrad's Kaliningrad Stadium will become a white elephant. There's, they've yeah. got an average attendance of 2,000. The, the, the stadium itself is actually built on a, a former swamp area, which is rife with bloody landmines, or used to be rife with World War II landmines and bombs. So it's pretty much given that that stadium will become a, a white elephant. It should never have got the... <laughs> the city should never have got it in the first place. Nah. It was a geopolitical decision because it's a port on the, on the bloody... Baltic. That's the only reason why. But I, I, I must admit, I can't really agree with Paramonov claiming that external forces are putting us them into that situation. I just think it's internal forces. It's the loss of the Swedish midfielder in the, in the winter break. It's the loss of Despotovic during the COVID break. I mean, Jordi Despotovic was, don't forget, the captain, the leading goal scorer, leading assist maker, leading shots and target, leading everything. You, every single part of their play was through him being a really yeah. effective and target man up top who scored some absolutely brilliant goals in the first half of the season. He, he was in double figures already and then because of COVID, because of the contract situation left. Now he's actually being linked with Ruben Kazan and I think that'll be a cracking signing for Ruben, especially in the way they play. It's not an external factor. He just lost some of his best players and then the, the rest that he has all got coronavirus. I feel sorry for them because if it wasn't for the restart, which, as we've mentioned, shouldn't have happened, there would be the Premier League next season. But you can't get away from the fact that for the majority of the restart, they've been pretty woeful on the pitch. Like like Malik's goal midweek when Zeni destroyed them 4-1 yeah. midweek. It was now, not the, good. 
<laughs> they, they put up a really good fight. There, there was 1-1 for a very long time. Then Zenit expectedly went out and steamrolled them by the end of the match. But the first goal is just a Horenberg all over. It's a, it's a long ball in from Zenit. And the defender just kind of kind of takes a look and, and opens his body up to go and clear the ball and just whacks it and volleys it into his bottom corner completely by accident. It's an incredible finish. It's in the entire wrong it was side good. of the pitch. It was good, to be fair. <laughs> so I, and it's just like one of those where it's completely unavoidable. Or it, it's completely by accident, but it wrecked the game for them. Absolutely wrecked them from the very, literally in the first couple of minutes of the match. And that's a microcosm of Orenberg's season. Is you've, you've got to feel sorry for them. But at the end of the day, they, they were crap enough to do that in the first place. So, yeah, clutching at straws for me. It's, it, it, I just ca- I can't. Yeah, I feel bad because we, we always do need an IKEA in Central Russia, and I think <laughs> IKEA is a good shop. And, Come on, guys, just Google. Go and Google. Give Orenberg Stadium. Tie it in in the search engine. Trust me, the outside of it is just like this blue corrugated steel iron stuff that literally just looks like it needs yellow Swedish writing across the side of it. But anyway, (laughs) I digress. Yeah. So now because of Orenberg's relegation and Krillia mathematically relegated for now, the only unresolved issue mathematically in the table is the race for Europe. Now we'll focus on sixth spot. After two wins in a row of Arsatula and Ufa, Dinamo are currently in the driving seat for a possible extra spot in sixth. Now they have a game in hand on everybody else in there in the fight on Ufa, Arsatula and Sparta and play Lowly Orenberg in the final game of the season. The qualification into the Europa League, of course, relies upon Zenit winning the Russian Cup. Otherwise, that place would go to Spartaku Ural. Now, Andrew, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe if Kimki wins... It's generally allowed that they'll not be uh, able to take place, just like Tosna weren't in 2018, I think, mm-hmm. because they were in the Fena L. Um, well, but anyway, so yeah, <laughs> um, I, was, I was that before Tosna kind of refused to it because Tosna obviously didn't play in Europe that season because they ceased to exist as a football club. But casting my mind back, I believe the decision was made beforehand because they're a Fena L club, can barely afford to stay in the league they're in because it got relegated, obviously, and couldn't, therefore, which it was decided for them that they couldn't play in Europe, so it went down to sixth. That's right, isn't it? Ufa. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, we, we saw, um, if I, I believe I'm also right in saying that when, uh, that Rostov, about four or five years ago, my memory is fading slightly, but they, I was either when they won the Russian Cup or came high enough to qualify, they didn't go into the Europa League then, um, and for similar reasons. And actually, I know it's going to sound awful because it should always be based on sporting merit. But if it really is going to cause such a financial burden, and it really will um, with the amount of travel, especially with group stage football, you've got to remember the cup gets you straight into the group stage. So you're guaranteed to have to go to at least three away games. Um, if you can't cope with a domestic schedule, then you're not going to be able to financially cope with the European one. So you're only going to make more yeah. problems for the health of the club long term. So although it does sound awful, I actually, uh, and it's, it's genuinely, it's not my bias against him, Key talking here, but it would just be a complete nonsense if they were to somehow win the Russian Cup, not to refuse promotion to the Premier League, but also take on Europa League. It just, it, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be feasible. Um, and uh, yeah, I just wouldn't see it happening. It would just be a little bit of gross negligence. Now, I'm going to do yeah. the old RFN bingo here and mention a, a team we all support from back home, and that's Sunderland, who 
uh, are rubbish. Don't get me wrong. Absolutely awful. So I will preface this with saying that we are terrible and do not deserve to get promotion at all. But Wickham Wanderers finished eighth in League One. But when the game was when the game stopped, they were eighth. And then points per game, because of some mathematical formula, they suddenly jumped up to fourth. And they're in the playoffs. They've just been promoted to the championship, despite finishing fourth and actually voting to refuse to play football. It's ridiculous. Now, I say, I say it, I'm not bitter because Sutherland is terrible. Absolutely <laughs> awful. But it's a little comparison to this, is that Kimke cannot refuse to go into the Premier League because of financial insolvency. And then go into Europe, which will cost an exponential amount more to actually have to play in Europe. So, but anyway, we, we digress again. It's Dynamo in the driving seat for sixth if Zenit win the cup. Now, further back, Arsenal and Ufa are level in 37 points and actually play each other in a very interesting last game of the season. While Spartak themselves take the whole Russian circus and all to Kazan to face Rubin in an equally difficult away game with Spartak's sheer inability to break down any sides who sit deep in counter. Now, Andrew, quickly, who, who would you stick your money on if sixth goes to Europe? Who would you stick your money on getting it? Uh, at this point, honestly, I think Dynamo, just purely because that's where they are right now. Um, they have the points on the board. Um Spartak, I think, have been wildly inconsistent, um, which will surprise many of our regular listeners. Um, <laughs> but they have genuinely really, really impressed me at times this season. And I'll tell you one very clear example was the first game back after the winter break when they completely outplayed Dynamo Moscow away from home in the Moscow derby. Um, they absolutely tactically were on point. Alex Crowell played out of his skin. Uh, going forwards, the counter-attacking was just, at times, was just breathless with Bakayev flying forward. Roman Zobnin finding the best form of his life. Um, and, you know, at that point, Alexander Sobolev hadn't hit his stride yet. And now, he, now he's hitting his stride now. Ponce on fire. Jordan Larson just full of confidence. Now, at that point, I would have said Spartak all the way. But at this point, I just think it's so all over the place. Dominica Tedesco is only, you know, minutes from a yellow or red card and a sideline ban. Um, I mean, to be honest, I think he probably did him a favour being on the sidelines in the last game so um, he wouldn't get a, yeah. a, a further ban. Um, Dinamo are not a long-term... I, this is going to sound weird, given what I've just said the last minute or so, but I think long-term Spartak are in a far better place to actually cope in Europe than Dinamo. I don't see Dinamo really going much further. They spent a lot of money on Maximilian Philip, who just pretty much since the word goes, looked like he doesn't want to be there. Um, you know, he scored a few penalties and three or four goals from open play and just sauntered around the pitch and most of the substitute spent. Um, not doing a great deal more, to be honest. Um, Spartak have the potential to be generally quite interesting in Europe. Problem is, I just don't think they're going to get there this season. Um, Dynamo probably won't win the game in hand against Krasnodar. They may get a point, um, but Krasnodar, like you mentioned, have their own motivations. If they win, they guarantee at least Champions League qualifiers, so they're going to be motivated. Um, so it'll most likely go down to the last day. Um, and with Dynamo playing Orenburg at home on the last day, <laughs> yeah, I think we can safely say and Rubin for Spartak away from home against Rubin is a very difficult game and always has been Rubin concede very few goals and they're looking very very dangerous so Dynamo my my turn for sixth place 
it's quite an interesting battle actually because the four teams who are still able to finish in that position are are kind of two sets of two polar opposites where you've got Dinamo and Spartak who are nowhere near the sum of the parts. They're a, very t- a team of very talented players, both of them. I mean, Dinamo's mm. team is absolutely rammed with talent, but for large parts of the season, they've been dreadful. And like, again, Spartak, lots of talent in there, lots of young and up-and-coming future stars. I mean, Alex Kral's still only 23. You've got young, younger players than that making debuts. And then... The, on the opposite hand, Arsenal, Tula and Ufa are just very effective and drilled. I mean, Arsenal until had a very bad run recently, but for the first half of the season especially, they were very effective and drilled and and have that one goal scorer in Lutsenka. And, and Ufa, the exact opposite of Dinamo and Spartak, where the team is a hundred times more than the sum of the parts. Yeah. And they've only really got a few players who have got genuine, genuine class to perform at this level. And... It's everything else around the club. It's because of the opposite of the crazy house at Spartak. And it's exactly the reason why Spartak hired Shamil Gazizov to take yeah. over as general director. So it, it it's quite a funny little dichotomy. And quickly on Spartak, I mean, I agree. It has to be Dinamo. They have the game in hand. Difficult way to Krasadar, yes. But sit there, get the point, and then go sit there, sit back, get the point, go home to Wufa at Orenberg, sorry, and slaughter them last game of the season. Job done. Yeah. But uh, I would have to say Dinamo. But on a quickly on Spartak Rubin, who that's that's a big last game, that's mm. last big chance. Roman Zobnin's goal against Akhmat midweek was an absolute wonder oh, strike. If amazing. anyone has uh, has not caught that, go on to the RPL highlights. There's a little forty second video just of that one, and it, oh, it came out of nowhere, just flies volley from not volley, sorry, a, a screamer from outside the box, just flies in the top corner, and then. Rubin. So, Andrew, I believe you've been doing a little bit of a, a deep dive on the old uh, Georgian wonder kids, Kavisha Kavatashelia. Oh. So he, against Rostov, I'll quickly preface by saying like how just good he was against Rostov that in, in, in the recent game, his he, he, on average, he completes seven to eight, I believe it is, dribbles per game. Yeah. Against Rostov, he completed 15 out of 20. And four of the five Rostov players who were booked were booked as a result of fouls on Kavisha alone. <laughs> Just incredible. Oh, uh, he's, he's unbelievable, this kid, isn't he? He's only, what, 19, I believe he is still? Um, 19, no older than 19 or 20 anyway. Um, just sometimes you see a performance where a player is just on it. He's just he's got the bit between his teeth. He's all, he's, I wouldn't say tunnel vision because he, you know, he does, he's got everything. He sets up, he lays chances on a plate for his teammates, left, right, centre. But yeah, like you say, his statistics alone were just utterly mind-blowing. Um, he, yeah, like you say, 15 dribbles, he beat his man 15 times. Quite often, it was two or three players in one in one move. You know, he beat two or three players in, a, in one go. Um, but, you know, he also won almost twice as many challenges in, in the opposition half, as any other left winger um, in the league, and he had four, he had four shots on goal, three of which were on target, which is more than all other left wingers combined. Um, <laughs> he, you know, he, two passes into the penalty area out of three found the target. Two key passes. Um, I mean, it's just everywhere you look, this boy is just absolutely mind blowing. And he does this on a regular basis, even if the numbers aren't quite the same every week. He yeah. is a different maker, a difference maker that I honestly would, I'd go out on a limb and say he's the most dangerous dribbler 
consistently the most dangerous dribbler, probably in the Russian Premier League at the moment. Um, mm -hmm. You've got players who have more experience. You've got the you've got the likes of if you go to Zenit, you've got Malcolm, of course. He's the, he's the joint record signing in Russian Premier League history um, with good reason. He's a phenomenal player. But I honestly would I honestly would say that um, creature rivals him for sheer penetration with the ball at his feet. Um, if Rubin hold on to him, they'll have done brilliantly, absolutely brilliantly. Um, yeah. I mean, he's a very, very big fish in a medium-sized pond, should we say. <laughs> a um, big fish, you could say. <laughs> nice, I like that. He's a big creature <laughs> in a, in a medium-sized Rubin pond. I'll tell you what, though. Um, if anybody is doing their scouting in Eastern Europe, um, then if they don't start sniffing around this kid, then um, Rubin are only going to have a very, very valuable asset on their hands. Um, he's he's just he's just phenomenal. I don't know what more what more superlatives we can throw at the guy. Um, and like I say, only what nineteen years old. So uh, if you look at his statistics as well, is it, it nothing really? catches the eye massively. I mean, he's played 26 games and he's only got five goals and assists, which it, it, it's solid enough, but it's not yeah. the way we're discussing, you wouldn't think it is, but he only he's only played 50 minutes per game. And he's, he's, as you say, he's still only 19. He, he's got a keen ability just to consistently beat a man. I haven't seen that for a long time since probably Promes where in, in, the, in the league where... He, yeah, you just know when he gets he gets the ball, that defender might as well not even be there at times. It, it, it reminds but, me of um, it reminds me of that Austin Powers film where um, Michael Caine comes into the room and he looks at the henchman. He doesn't have a name tag. He says, "Do you know how many anonymous henchmen I've killed in my time? You don't even have a name tag. Just 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 roll, just lie down on the floor, be a good lad." And that's basically what Creature does. He says to defenders, "Look, come on, I'm Creature. Just 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 don't even just let me go past you." Um, yeah, he's got a magic. His unpredictability is great. Oh. But if I was to say one thing where he, he does need to improve, I think it's his consistency with his final ball. At times, it's brilliant, as we've seen the overhead kicks, the, 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 that run where he took on four players and cut it back for Salt Murray Bakayev to, to score. Like At times, it's incredible, his final ball. But obviously, every player can improve, especially younger players. And I think that as he gets more experience, it's that. Final split second decision making, which he will improve on. Yeah, and he, yeah. he's a little bit raw right now, but very exciting raw oh, talent at least. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, moving on to someone that Kavicha could be a, a bigger fish in a bigger pond is looking up at the table a little bit. We'll have a quick look at the UCL Champions League qualification. Now, Logo can only be caught in second with a little bit of a mad run of fixtures where either they lose away to Ural and Krasnodar win both their games left against Dinamo and Akhmat Glozny or uh, Dean, uh, Krasnodar win one, draw one and Ural gets slaughtered by Loco and goals difference is the same because Krasnodar have got more uh, more wins got a better head-to-head -head record and obviously with that game in hand could be crucial now a little bit further back Siska themselves play Tambov at home in the last game of the season, and in order to finish third and get into the qualification, they have to finish ahead of. They have to basically just better Krasnodar's result, and hope Krasnodar lose. And then Rostov or Zenit could still finish a little bit higher, but fifth looks likely for them. Now we'll we'll just quickly go on to this one, just a like a quick little thing: is who do you think is going to get that position at second, and who, who do you think is going to get third, Andrew? Um, yeah, I mean, Lokomotiv are clearly in the in the driving seat there, aren't they? They if they they know what they've got to do, 
Um, the form is simple. They've got to beat one of the, well, the worst defence in the Russian Premier League. Um, they beat Ural in midweek. And, I, I mean, we'll, we'll know, obviously, after Sunday, if Ural make it to the Russian Cup final, their entire attention will be on that. They're safe from relegation. They will not be in the slightest bit motivated. The team will be rotated. It'll basically be laid on a plate for Lokomotiv to, to go and win. Um, and, and uh, you know, when you when you know exactly what you have to do, you don't need to count other things. If you know what you just need to win and you get what you need, that's what Loco, that's the position they're in. And they're playing a team that will have very little to play for. So Lokomotiv to finish second, um, Krasnodar to, to finish third. Uh, I think realistically Krasnodar, I think, are going to beat Dinamo in the, the game they have in hand. And they, they don't have to travel anywhere. They've got, um, we've got a week's break. Uh, not sort of not a week's break, a few days break until Ahmad comes to town. Ahmad is safe, so again, uh, I think Krasnodar will win both their games. I think local win theirs too, so no change there for me. Um, okay. uh, Tisca have been improved, have improved in the last few weeks, um, but they just they don't have points on the board. So no. local went yeah. to second, Krasnodar third. We've got a bit too much to do as well, and I, yeah. I think looking forward to next, looking ahead to next season as well. You look at the quality of the club and the, the experience and the know-how at the club, which is absolutely vital in, in European competition. Now, to, to show that is local, how they did two years ago as uh, last year, as opposed to this year in the group stages last year, they were rock bottom, absolutely terrible, and largely the same team improved tenfold in the group stages yes. and will only improve again as they get more experience of playing at the elite level of football. Siskar, I don't think, are ready for that just yet. Now, granted, this this team of plucky, generally plucky lads and prodigious talents have defeated Real Madrid in Madrid, so I'll not go harsh on them a little bit too much. And they have, as you said, came back into form with Chalo finally getting in the goals again. But player for player, I think Krasnodar signed people last season who, at the start of this season, actually, it was that bloody long ago, who they got ready for European football. Tony Vilhena, Remy Cabea, now Manuel Fernandez. Mm. If you look through the depth of their team and the quality they've got, it's 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 probably only surmounted by the top two. Now, they've had massive issues with injury this season, but if anybody wants to look at the quality that Krasadar has got, is just have a little look at the highlights from the Ural game, where they, they swept Ural aside, beat them 3-0. Oh. Cabela with a wonderful Penenka penalty. But the, the best move of the match for me was uh, Vanderson on the left-hand side. Absolutely does Dennis Kulakov, who's no 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 slouch whatsoever. He turns him inside out and then whips a lovely ball across the Marcus Berg to absolutely mess it up and have a terrible finish from a yard out and completely miss mess it up. But it was a really is a really nice piece of play from Wanderson has went a little bit un- overlooked as well. I would mm. really recommend people to try and find those highlights and have a look at that move because it was great. And obviously, I I think Loco just they know what they have to do. Get that, get that point against, get that at least a point, uh, beat Ural, and then they'll be fine. Ural, of course, a little bit of spanner in the works as if they defeat Kimki, which you pretty much expect, is that all their focus is going to be on the cup final. So yeah. it's a little bit of a tasty one, but with Loco obviously in position points on the board, it's hard to look past them right now. Now, yeah. on these two, on this, another quick little side topic is. Two of these sides we've mentioned in the race for the European positions, Siska and Spartak, have been quite aggrieved regarding some controversial refereeing of late. Now, again, we discussed this in depth a fortnight ago, but we'll re- 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 
revisit it here because an interesting development has popped up is that Spartak's main supporters group for the Fratria have actually penned an open letter to Alexander Dukov, the head of the RFU, in which they ask for regular public explanations on refereeing decisions, in quotes. Now, we see this kind of accountability during play in American sports when technology is used, uh, where the referee or the umpire or official, whatever they're called over there, some silly names, have to <laughs> physically describe what decision was made, why that decision was made, and what decision it overturned if technology, for example, has been called upon. Now, I'm not quite sure if we need a a run-by-run. Run. Game week's ended. Here's the RFU article weekly on every single contentious decision that was made. Here's a run-by-run run why that wasn't given, why that was given, because that's just going into opening a can of worms where everybody's going to question it, and quite frankly, we don't need that. But the interesting thing is that they basically want more accountability and more just explanations. And I do think for VAR specifically, this would be very handy. It would be very handy for those in the stadium, especially who are a little bit confused at times, especially in stadiums that don't have big screens, where the referee just sticks a mic on, quick minute explanation. This is what happened. This is why it was overturned. Or this is why the decision has been upheld. Play on. Now that would clear so much confusion up. And... Maybe it would add a minute on, maybe. But this is one of those cases where they need to stop the clock and so on. And but I don't know. If if it's a quick one, let's just get if it if it's a confusing decision or if it's a quick one, just get people give them the knowledge of why and how and what the decision making is. Because then it would stop these wild conspiracy theories that are always in the Russian game where you've got a Siska fan who's saying, Ah, logo get penalties because the government love logo. Because the trains, the trains want Logo to win. And then you've got the Spartak fans who are all Gazprom, angry, Spartak, <laughs> no like. We want our decisions. Like, I guarantee that something is going in the back of the mind, but like, like human error exists. There's no grand conspiracy that every single Zenit decision is pro-Zenit. They've had just as many bad decisions uh, maybe before last week, as Spartak had. <laughs> it's just because the sheer amount in the last couple of games. Like, you can't deny that in the last two games, Spartak have had some horrendous luck and some horrendous decisions go against them. But before that, it was, there was just as many bad ones against Zenit as there was Spartak. There is no general conspiracy theory. And I just think this sort of little bit of an explanation that they've released or a description of why the decision mm. was made using the rules would help dissuade these conspiracy theories. What's, what do you think by what they're asking for, Andrew? Do you think that this explanation on decisions could be useful? Well, yeah, I mean, there, there are some very simple compromises that could be made here. Um, I'll take rugby union as an example. Referees in rugby union make a specific hand gesture that, that there is a very clear code of what the hand gesture means so that you understand exactly what a decision has been given for. Um, now, I mean, I know, it's, I know it's a different sport, but I actually see another reason why that example works. Because in, in rugby union, you can, have, you can have a ruck where you really cannot see what is going on um, underneath a pile of bodies. So you really do need an explanation. Um, and with VAR, especially like you mentioned, for the stadiums that don't have a big screen, it's, it's, it could be kind of similar. You might not know what part of the move it is. Um, and what explanation it is. So if it, it could be a slightly clearer system of just a simple signal from the referee, um, or at least some signal to the, uh, you know, a stadium announcer who can put up on the screen that's saying, uh, goal disallowed for, um, you know, uh, 
uh, active pasture play or uh, player was considered offside because he was active or I don't know, whatever it is. Um, just a simple sentence. So it's not, and you make it a generic sentence so it's not emotive so that fans don't start getting upset by not understanding why. Um, I think some level of accountability is a good thing. Um, I agree with you. We sh- it should be very strictly limited and an explanation should be given. But one thing you notice in the English Premier League, James, is that you know you see if a very clear mistake has been made by VAR, um, it will be explained afterwards. Um, it will be said, look, we, we've got that one wrong. Um, and I actually think, I mean, a bit of humility is not a bad thing because we have seen how technology can make mistakes. And for me, I supported VAR when it came in because I genuinely believed what we were told, that it was 100% or as near to 100% as you could get. But we've seen some mistakes recently, um, even by the technology. So if some compromise is made where fans in the stadium, I agree with you on this one, fans in the stadium need to be, uh, need to be having it explained to them, I don't think anything could be lost by that. And maybe a bit of good faith could come from it. Yeah, certainly. I think that's that's a big one. It's just a little bit of good faith. It's yeah. I, mean, I, I take the mic out of these conspiracy theories, but these conspiracy theories exist because there's a general distrust and in general kind of knowledge of the, the know that referees in the country are incompetent. That it comes down to it is th- th- these theories are promulgated and so widely spread purely because it's not good enough. The standard of refereeing in the country is simply nowhere near the level it should be at. Now, obviously, the, as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, they've hired Victor Kashai in, in an attempt to oversee refereeing and to try and make moves on that. And right now, it's far too early to tell if that's any going to be any successful or what. But hopefully in the future, it can help. And, and one of these... The, this accountability and, and, and uh, maybe not even accountability, just just communication. And you said a little bit of humility will go a long way. Now, on a on a happier note, especially for yourself, Andrew, yeah. as previously mentioned, this weekend's the Cup of Russia semi-finals. Now we've both got a stake in this one. Ural faced Kimki and Zenit was Spartak. Local are actually the current record title holders with eight, which is an, an incredible amount considering it's only been going for like thirty years. But Spartak themselves haven't won since 2003, Zenit since 2016, Ural have been runners-up in 17 and 19, but haven't actually won it yet. And then Kimki themselves have runners-up in 2005 and also winless of the full competition. Now, Kimki, we'll start with Ural Kimki. Kimki played three friendlies over the last three weeks and won against Saturn 3-0, Spartak 2-3-0 and Lokomotiv Kazanka 4-0. But they haven't actually played competitively at all since March. Now, Ural lost two in a row, but they were actually five unbeaten before that, and Eric McFalvey's been an absolute fire scoring worldies left, right, and centre. Now, how do you see your boys coping? Are you expecting another seat in the final, or hopefully for a third time in four years? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've, it'd be absolutely mad to consider anything else for all the reasons you've just outlined. The fact that Himke have been out of competitive action for four months now. Um, Ural are uh, a very, very strange side, I'll be honest. Um, Big Falvey is one of the most... He just has so much natural talent, um, which it's almost like he's hoarding all of Ural's talent in one body because there's not a great deal of it elsewhere in the squad. Um, <laughs> Obmanel Kabir, when he's in the mood, can be a very, very talented winger. But 
Bordeaux struggle massively, and they just simply cannot. Their, their defence is 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 a, been a mess for a long, long time. But this is a different kettle of fish. We're talking about Himki here. Um, we're talking about a rubbish side um, who don't deserve or even want to be in the Premier League. They haven't played for a long time. The motivation with Oral is is not just that it's a chance to be in the final for the third year out of four, but also, of course, that the final will be in Yekaterinburg itself. Um, not only that, but um, Grigory Ivanov, the Oral president, is he's been vocal for some time that he wants to get the club into Europe and he's pretty much targeted the Russian Cup. And I actually think it's quite smart that he's he massively encourages the the club to focus on the Russian Cup because he realises it's the best chance. Um, Ural have been not a million miles off, despite what people selectively remember, um, off league qualification for Europa League um, over the last few years. One or two campaigns have been only about three or four points off fifth or sixth place. Um, so... I mean, can you picture it? Okay, yes, the, without the fans is a major, major blow because had there been no um, coronavirus pandemic and a full capacity had been allowed, home stadium, a final against Spartak also needs. It doesn't get bigger than that. And Europa League, direct group stage qualification on the line. Um, a first major trophy in the club's history. I mean, it's just there's everything riding on it. So him can fortunately have absolutely no chance I'm going to stick my neck on the line um, and it's going to be a comfortable comfortable 3-4-0 win for Ural yeah uh, that's a one little quick question about Ural actually is that now as everyone well knows there's only 10% of uh, spectators allowed in the stadiums right now and as of I believe next season there will be allowed uh, increase to 50% now that is the start of the new season isn't it the final is still limited to the 10% of spectators yeah um, that's my understanding at least anyway um, the I, I will be going on Sunday to the semi-final and they have very very limited places left in, in the stands um, which basically tells you even if you didn't know there was a limit it would tell you that there must be something because the Centralny holds 35,000 if they open all the stands, um, 25 if they don't open the mad stands that go outside the actual stadium cover. Um, and the only only games that ever get a, anywhere near a full capacity are games against Spartak, Zenit, and possibly Loco or Tesco. Yeah. Um, and there are only uh, less than about 100, 200 tickets left at most for Sunday's game. Um, so yeah, it will be limited. On the game itself, you have to. You, it's hard to look past Ural for this one. Kim Key, like we said, haven't played in a hell of a long time, and there's just a, a massive gulf in quality right now between the Fena L and the, the better sides than the RPL. Now, a, a little spanner in the works could be that two of the joint top scorers in the competition are actually uh, Kim Key players. It. Uh, Artem Poliaros and uh, Vladimir Diadyun, both are three each, level with Jordan Larson. Now. Kimki like to score. They've been scoring for fun in this in the uh, in the Fena Elder season, and as we know, Ural's defence is a bit rubbish. But very true. Quality will tell. I think quality will tell. I mean, those two players, quite frankly, are only joint top scorers because they got a brace each against Torpedo when Torpedo collapsed against Kimki five one in the quarterfinals. Now going onto the other game, Zenit against Spartak. Zenit themselves are actually unbeaten in the last three against Spartak, winning two of which. 
They've also defeated Spartak 4-2, 5-2 and 5-1 at home in recent years. And the referee, Sergei Ivanov, who's in charge of the semi-final, is actually in charge of one of those games, which is probably a bit of a party for Zenit fans, but for Spartak it was horrific watch. Absolutely horrific. Now, Spartak themselves defeated Akmat, but quite handsomely as well, and unexpectedly, to be quite honest. But before they hadn't won in five, and Tedesco himself is on sitting out on the sidelines, uh, sitting on the last of his three-match ban for striking a fourth official in the draw with Logo. Now, as mentioned, Jordan Larson's actually one of the joint top scorers in the competition. And Larson himself has been playing very good football and was unlucky not to score at the weekend, was unlucky not to get given a penalty in the midweek game before that, or another way around. And then, do I think we could upset Zenit? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. <laughs> not a hope in hell. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I mean, I remember after the Arsenal-Tula match, myself and probably majority of other Spartak fans had kind of lost the cautious pessimism that you usually have and, and seen that the end was a bit crazy, crazy decision-making and weird refereeing and a little bit of a mad comeback. But for, for the majority, 80 minutes of the match, Spartak tore Arsenal-Tula apart who had been playing well up until that point. And it turned out that that match was actually an outlier because Arsenal had been so bad. And then from then on, Spartak went on to the five-match unbeaten run. But Zenit just have far too much about them. And, and Sergei Semak is the utmost professional. His team, led by Artem Zuba, would not sit back or let go whatsoever. They've already played a couple of the kids. I mean, Daniel Prokin, Shamki and uh, Masayev have all had minutes in recent games. Uh, they've started Jordan Osorio, they've started Alexis Sutorman, who scored against Orenberg. They have rotated. They've, they've played uh, Yelakin, they've played Juliusi up front. They have rotated. Now, they can go to the semi-final with a free, free air afterwards. No pressure at all on any of the league games that they've got to play, because they've already bagged the, tro- bagged the league trophy. And just probably tear us apart, because Bartek are pretty bad. But that is the pessimistic Spartak fans' point of view. <laughs> the optimism in me hopes that we can. It's a cup game. You never know what happens in cup games. It's a little bit like a derby in the sense that anything can happen. It's a little bit crazy. In the last round, Spartak tore apart Siska in a really good performance. So I don't know. What about you, Andrew? Can you really uh, see past the Gazprom Giants facing Ural in the final? Oh, you know, I would. I would love to be able to give the complete opposite of what you've just said and say, yes, they definitely will. Um, actually, in all seriousness, I genuinely, I genuinely do think that, that Spartak will look at this game in a, in a similar way to how Zanit will look at it. Zanit have no pressure at all, like you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Completely, categorically, um, it is focused. In t- I mean, in the league, they have no pressure, obviously. They've won the, they've won the title. Spartak, looking at the league, yes, okay, mathematically, um, they might just about squeeze into sick, but it's, it's just so unlikely that I actually think the smartest move for Spartak will be, well, we'll, we'll focus on this. We'll, we'll take advantage of the fact that the Gazprom Arena will not be packed full. Um, therefore, you know, the, the pressure of 60,000 fans will not be on us. Had it been no restrictions, you can guarantee that would have been an electric atmosphere in there. And that might have made it a bit nervy, possibly, for Sparta. But... Yeah. On the other hand, you know, you say how good Zenit are, and they are. Unquestionably, they have been the best team by a country mile this season, deserve a champions. However, they haven't blown teams away completely in the last few weeks. Now, yes, they've rotated a lot of sides, but even before they'd wrapped up the title, they weren't they weren't steamrolling sides. I mean, okay, if you discount Woodall 7-1, 
Um, but then again, that means nothing because what else is, <laughs> is, is, is worse than my under 11 side when I was at school. But, um, you know, they, there is a there is a chance that Zanid, if they don't control the game early on, um, if you have Jordan Larson fired up, that boy can make things happen. Bakayev pulling the yeah. strings, Zobnin, Kral just monstering that centre midfield. And that might be a problem. So he played two in the middle and Kral usually is on his own as a defensive midfielder. Um, if he has the game of his life, he could be the key to this game, I think. Because um, once yeah. Zob- Zobnin and Bakayev released and with, well, any two of Sobolev, um, Ezekiel Ponson, Jordan Larson, um, whoever he chooses, you never know. There is definitely always hope. Um, so See, you don't know yet. My worry about Spartak is that we've just been completely and utterly useless at defending any form of set piece or long whipped cross into the box, a high ball up. They're just For some reason, even though they play a back three and have got two very prominent aerially strong defenders in Georgi Jikia and Samuel Gijo, but they're just especially crosses into the box and, and set pieces are absolutely woeful. Like against uh, Tambov, they left, they left Alex Kral to mark, who's probably the tallest player on the pitch, and Alexei Glitzayanka. And he beat him in the air quite handsomely because he's about six foot twelve. And then later on in the ga- earlier on in the game, sorry, there was a uh, Rabin was free on the right hand side, and and there was a little bit of a counter attack, a little bit of a Spartak mistake, but he whipped this great ball in early, very early ball. And then you just see Kostyakov. Oh no, it was, it was sorry, it was Chaperka. You just see Chaperka within about thirty yards space. There wasn't a Spartak defender tracking him in midfield and like nowhere near him, and just ran through everybody. Just the first time volley it. Nice little finish as well because it wasn't easy turning his back with his back to the ball, waiting for ready for it to come in. It was a great little finish, but Spartak was just nowhere near. And if they do that against Tambov, I can only imagine how much fun Artem Zuba's going to have. Probably the strongest and most proficient target man and striker in general in the league. But, like, I, I will, I, I was now going to make a little joke about Gazprom Arena being a, a little bit of a tourist spot and not having a great atmosphere. But to be quite honest, when, when you get that roof closed, like, uh, you have that sort of nighttime atmosphere, they close the roof, and that, that the sound of those ultras in the North Stand just reverberate around the whole stadium it's such a great atmosphere when that roof is closed it's kind of like the opposite like you want to be in there you, it's your relishing being a part of the experience it's like the opposite of being at the Petrovsky midweek when you just wanted to be everywhere else but there because it was bloody freezing cold <laughs> James <laughs> I think if, if if anybody was joining the pod in the last three minutes and didn't know about your previous affiliation they would know from the sheer ingrained pessimism in your voice that you are a Spartak Moscow fan. <laughs> yeah, well, the crazy house starts at the top and we're all just used to it by now. <laughs> wow. Anyway, that's it's been it for the RFN podcast this week. Andrew, thanks again for joining me. Oh, well, it's a pleasure to always. Thank you for hosting, James. So next week, it's the end of the season, but don't fret, guys, because the cup finals on the 25th of July when the season starts back up again just a week later on the week, first weekend of August. Now, we'll not discuss Andrew's little comment earlier about not worrying about the yeah, Ural's defence getting defeated 7-1 by Zenit and probably having to face them in a cup final because we can do that all in a preview next week. Now, check out the site at russianfootballnews.com for coverage of the games and the wider goings on in the pyramids. And I'm going to go up by my promise from last week and do and get that article finally on the new development at the Streltsov Historic Trial. Now, I've been James Nichols, at James Nichols on Twitter. Andrew, what's your Twitter handle again? 
Uh, I'm at Andrew M-I-J Flint on Twitter. Great. And uh, good luck for this weekend, by the way, because as I think we'll lose the Zenit. So I think most of Russia are probably rooting for Rural Alaco and try and get that <laughs> cup in third time the charm and all that. Much, much appreciated, mate. Thank you. That's been the RFN podcast. Goodbye for now. Веди его, беги, точнее его удар Но мяч берет на нерешительный вратарь Не напрасно футбольное поле Самых ловких и смелых плечок Здесь нужны тренировка и воля Быстрота, увлечение, расчет